0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 314th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today on our podcast, we have someone who found a love of plants through her job. We're talking with Shannon McCabe about gaining a passion for gardening. Shannon is a writer, seed explorer, and horticulturist for Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company. After earning a degree in environmental horticulture from the University of Rhode Island, she worked on mixed vegetable farms and a fruit orchard before starting her own small-scale farm on historic farmland. She combined her lifelong love of writing with her passion for farming when she began working as the farm manager and catalog writer for Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Through co-writing the award-winning whole seed catalog, hosting instructional videos, and dreaming up the Baker Creek Children's Gardening Book, she has enjoyed bringing the arcane heirloom vegetables of our past back to the forefront of the gardening discussion. Welcome to the show today, Shannon. Are you ready to rock?
1: Woohoo! Yes, I am.
0: Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Sure can. Well, that was extremely comprehensive, but there are some little additions I could make. So I grew up on a small island off the coast of Rhode Island called Block Island. It's actually only three by seven miles large and it's 14 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. Yeah. I grew up in a very small insular town, but there was an amazing historic farm on this island. It just so happens that the farmer who owned that farm was my mom's best friend. Um, So from a young age, I was really taken by the farm life that I was able to sometimes participate in at my mom's friend's farm. Wow. I was really inspired by how old this farm was. The land had been farmed for about 300 years on and off.
0: Wow.
1: I was always eager to go over to my friend Kathy's farm to participate in the pumpkin harvest or picking the basil. I, myself, I grew up on a tourism-based horse farm where I took guided trail rides to the beach in the nature preserve with tourists Mm -hmm. on horseback. I grew up on kind of a farm. I was always pretty enchanted by the vegetable farming, and, and it just was right just down the road at a friend's farm. So always kind of admired vegetable farming, never did it as a child at home. And then I went to college and I became enamored with horticulture and I, I started studying. I switched majors pretty early on and started studying horticulture. Then I became a farmer. I worked on a couple of fruit orchards and a, a couple mixed vegetable farms. And then I ended up circling back to that historic farm that I was so in love with as a child. And I actually worked a plot of land there and had a market farm. Wow. I grew up mixed vegetables on this historic piece of land. I uh, worked with my mom's friend, who is also my friend, mm-hmm. and she gave me a lot of tips, but I also learned quite a lot just from making mistakes and, and learning along the way, also gleaning information from my studies. But it was just a, an experiment, and I, and I really enjoyed it. I really loved the connection with my market customers and learned a lot through making a lot of mistakes. After two years of doing my own farm on the historic land, I decided to apply for a job at Baker Creek, and I got it, and I packed up, left little Rhode Island, left my little island, and I moved to the Missouri Ozarks, where I worked for Baker Creek as a garden manager and catalog writer. I'd always had a passion for writing. Since I was a child, I was a very inquisitive kid. I was always that kid who was like sidled up to the adults with wide eyes and was asking everyone their backstory because I was just fascinated by stories. And so I I loved family history. I loved hearing people's stories. So I was always a writer, always a storyteller. Then I studied horticulture and it sort of all tumbled into one thing at Baker Creek.
0: Wow. That is fascinating. So you basically had one amazing, incredible job your entire life.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I moved from historic farming to Baker Creek and I did start out on a pretty neat, you know, horse farm. So, always farming in various capacities, really tried to focus on my connection with my customers. That's a big part of it is communication and education for me.
0: Yeah. So, you're also a writer. Tell me how did that come about?
1: Well, I was really into journalism in high school and even as a little kid, I was pretty obsessed with storytelling and writing. I was very into family history, very rich family history. My family were we are all good storytellers. I come from a long line of school teachers, so they're very good with communicating and storytelling and so we've always passed down our family history in that way. I never grew up with the family culinary history that really wasn't part of our thing. We didn't grow a garden together and we didn't do big family meals. We told stories and so that's how we sort of shared our family history was through storytelling. Mm-hmm. So always love the writing and the storytelling from from when I was a child.
0: Wow. You know, it's absolutely wonderful when we can take a passion like that and meld it into another passion like seed saving and make that our contribution to the world where we get to make our living.
1: Absolutely. And I I don't think I ever saw that coming. I don't think it was a really roundabout way to become a writer. I had wanted to be a writer when I was a child. I think if I looked back at various things that I wrote as a child, I had stated that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And then maybe I i don't know, I lost, lost that direction along the way and then I studied horticulture and then came back to writing through that path, which I think is kind of strange but it, it works.
0: Cool. You're really into heirloom seeds. Can you tell us what they are and why you're so obsessed with them?
1: Aha. So I did I do love heirloom seeds first of all I'll start with what is an heirloom because that can be up to debate there are a few different definitions of what an heirloom is mm-hmm. an heirloom seed by the definition that i like to go by and that is generally accepted is any variety of seed that is open pollinated which means it is naturally bred it's not genetically engineered and it hasn't been it's not an f1 hybrid it hasn't been hybridized basically the seeds can be reliably saved year after year. So you have a tomato, you have an heirloom tomato, Uh, your grandmother saved the seeds for this tomato year after year, maybe making slight alterations throughout the generations for larger size or a deeper red color. And each year she saves those seeds and she passes them down to you. And so that is an heirloom seed is something that is open pollinated and the seeds can be reliably saved year after year. Some folks Add the stipulation that an heirloom must be over 50 years old or, you know, stabilized for over 50 years. And while many of the varieties that Baker Creek offers and that I am very fascinated by personally are over 50 years old, my company and and myself, we like to include the newer heirloom seeds under the umbrella definition of heirloom because there are new varieties that are open pollinated, naturally selected, not hybrid and not GMO that also have a fantastic story, but they don't happen to be 50 years old. My definition is an open pollinated seed where you can reliably save the seeds year after year. And I don't think it has to be at least 50 years old, but it it sure is interesting when they happen to be that old or older.
0: No kidding. And your job these days is really telling the stories about them, is it not?
1: Yes. Yes. So that is my main job for Baker Creek now is I am a catalog writer. So I am given a list of new varieties. Oftentimes I'm actually going out and finding those varieties and bringing them to the attention of the company. But in many instances, these are varieties that are brought to us by various growers or just folks who have saved seeds over many years. However, we they come to me My job is to research their history or learn firsthand to grow them and observe them, taste them, learn to love them. And then I, take all of the information, all the characteristics, all the history, and I compile that into a description. And so that's what you read when you're reading a catalog. And the specific focus of my company is to go beyond the basic description of a specific variety. So we go beyond just how tall the variety might reach or the color of the fruit. We like to delve into the history, the cultural significance, where where this seed began or who has been the curator or person who saved it, whatever we find significant and that makes it special so that a customer or just a person reading might find something significant or interesting about it and want to want to grow it
0: cool so do you have i want you to kind of think back in your memory over the past however many years you've been doing this and tell me a really cool like one of those stories that just moves you about a seed because you're a seed story teller so tell me a story about a really cool seed
1: Oh man, there's so, there is so many incredible stories. That's what I love about my job is there's no shortage of incredible stories. One of my favorite heirlooms, and it's kind of a personal, personal favorite of mine. I, it's, it's hard for me to really pick a favorite because I have a different favorite every two weeks. But right now, the one that is really speaks to me is the Ajvarski pepper. So this is a long red pepper with thick walls and it's from Serbia, and it is made into a sauce called ajvar. The name is sort of rooted in the Turkish word for caviar, and as the story goes, in the what is now Serbia area in the 1800s, caviar was highly consumed. It was a popular food. So the area, especially around Belgrade, was known as kind of a caviar-heavy area. And then in around the 1890s, because of some labor disputes, caviar became more scarce. So as a replacement, folks started making this eggplant and pepper-derived sort of caviar substitute, and it's it was called ajvar, and, it, and it's nicknamed Serbian caviar or Serbian salad. Mm-hmm. This pepper is special because it's said to carry a scent over 10 feet from the garden. So when as you're walking by, you can just smell this pepper.
0: Wow. And
1: I was particularly taken with it because my my great-grandfather was born in what is now Sombor, Serbia. And so I have kind of an affinity for crops that are from that area because I feel sort of culturally connected and intrigued by it. So... Mm -hmm. I made my own batch of Ajvar this summer. I made it and I shared it with my family and with my roommates and they were just bowled over with the flavor. And I was stunned. I was really impressed because I truly did. I could smell the pepper growing from over 10 feet from my (laughs) garden. It's a highly fragrant pepper and it makes this really incredible sauce it's special to me because it sort of puts my family history into context you know it's a food that might have might have been in my in my family's history and i grew it and just was enamored with it but there's about eight billion stories that i could that i could tell <laughs> literally right yeah there are really there's so many and that's That's what it's all about, but that one is sort of my personal favorite right now.
0: So why are these stories so important?
1: They tie people together and they they help us to understand one another, to explore each other's culture and realize that we're actually so similar in this world. We all have similar stories. We all have similar traditions, they might be a bit different and unique, and I think that there's a real beauty in the exchange of knowledge and the exchange of cultural customs. And I think with heirloom seed stories, that's really what is at the root of the story, is a custom or a tradition, just a strong sense of family that's passed down in the story, because it's really connected to the people who select those seeds.
0: And you get the opportunity to travel around the world to collect seeds and to collect seed stories.
1: Yes, I am very fortunate. That is one of my jobs at Baker Creek. I've been sent all over the world, continue to be traveling, looking for new varieties, old varieties, saving seeds and saving seed stories, and also just creating bonds and connections with various growers and storytellers all over the world. So looking for new things, looking for exotic crops, but also just looking for folks who are doing cool projects that we can maybe donate seeds to or help participate in in some way.
0: Excellent. So thinking about your world travels, we're going to get to the Arizona connection here in a little while, but I want you to tell me about a trip that you took somewhere else in the world, other than the U S collecting seeds.
1: Ah, okay. So I've been very fortunate I've gotten to do several really neat trips. I've been to the Peruvian Amazon. That was actually my first trip that I took. It was incredible. I was really taken with the hospitality and enthusiasm of Peruvian seed savers, folks in that area who have such an incredible tie to to their heritage and to these varieties. So in the Peruvian Amazon, we were specifically looking for, actually we were looking for garden berries, I guess you would call them. We were looking for rare solanaceous crops. So crops related to tomato, Mm -hmm. but that have sort of a sweeter flavor. Basically, our goal was let's find a new fruit for the garden because people love the fruit and it's a huge seller for us. So we wanted to bring something that's sweet, but that can be grown in the span of one season. We didn't want to bring something that would require a greenhouse or an extremely long season. And we wanted to just bring in a new idea. So garden berries the solanaceous fruits, the rare solanaceous fruits from Latin America are a great choice because you can grow them as an annual. You can grow them in one season. They bring that element of sweetness to your garden and they're incredibly exotic. Folks just don't grow them up here. Right. One that we found that I was really excited about was the cocona, And that is a relative of the tomato. It's a yellow fruit about the size of a golf ball. And it has this incredible sour, tangy, sweet flavor. I had it actually, diced up in relish, a cassava empanada. Our guide friend that took us through the Amazon and showed us this plant growing in the wild, he told us that it's actually used as jungle shampoo. So shampoo, relish, people juice it and mix it with fruits. It's very refreshing. It's one of the most dynamic fruits I've ever tasted and grown. It's just entirely new to us. It's it's something that we don't grow in North America on any kind of commercial level, and it's a really fun addition to the home garden. It's very unusual and rewarding to grow.
0: Wow, I want one. Where do I get them?
1: You got to go to rareseeds.com on our website that you can you can get them.
0: All right, perfect. So spell it for me so that anybody listening to this podcast, they can spell it and go to rareseeds.com and get them.
1: Sure. So that's rare, R-A-R-E, seeds, S E. E D S dot com. RareSeeds.com.
0: Perfect. And the name of the fruit?
1: cocona C-O-C-O-N-A.
0: Perfect. Oh, that's super simple. Awesome. All right. So let's talk Southwest. In our pre-conversation, you said, oh my gosh, Greg, I was down in the Southwest recently because we found a new watermelon.
1: Yeah, so this may be. Actually, I'm sure it is the most interesting seed story that I've come across in my job yet. And it's a newly developed story. So... Baker Creek had received kind of an anonymous tip. I say anonymous, but in reality, it was a very kind person sent us a letter telling us about this rare watermelon, and we accidentally misplaced the letter. So I'm saying anonymous mostly because we lost the letter. (laughs) Oh. We couldn't figure out who sent it to us. This was just a tip that we had gotten Someone said, hey, there's this incredible handled watermelon grown in the southwest, and it's grown by this small kind of community of folks. It was purportedly the seeds were found in a cave by an artifact hunter in the 1920s. We basically had to go from this tip. It just so happened we had had this tip and we lost the letter. So we're sort of trying to find clues, but we were sort of running in all directions. We didn't really have any idea really how to find this seed because it was so rare and we couldn't find anything in publications or on the internet. And just around at that same time, we were a grower and seed saver from Utah named Greg Bat reached out to us and said, hey, I have access to this really neat variety of watermelon. I believe it was found in a cave in the 1920s and it has a handle. We said, oh, that's the same one that we've been trying to find some history on. So we connected with Greg and he helped to connect us with this incredible network of seed savers and farmers who have been saving seed on this very unusual watermelon with a handle shape. So I guess I'll go back and explain it. This is a watermelon that has a crook neck. It almost looks like a gourd or a squash. Uh It's not your oblong or rounded watermelon. It actually is a tapered, we'll call it a handle. So the story is that a man named Art Comby, in the early 1920s, he was teaching horticulture on the Apache Indian Reservation in Arizona, in the Magian Rim. And he And I believe that's in the White Mountains area. It is? Forgive me because there were a lot of locations that we visited and I they sometimes were hard to keep track of. So he was teaching horticulture on this reservation and he had gone out with his students to do some artifact hunting. Now, I'll just back up and say this was in a time when artifacts were not turned into any university or agency and there really wasn't any place for him to turn these artifacts into. So he was artifact hunting with some students and he found a small woven bottle on the back edge of a sandstone cave, and it was covered in inches of guano and sand. It was clearly had been stored in this cave for many, many years. Wow. Yeah, so when he and his students chipped away the guano and the sand and pulled the cork from this small bottle, he poured out into his hand a bottle full of watermelon seeds, and they were bright red watermelon seeds. It's so incredible that a horticulturalist found these seeds because in the hands of just maybe any old artifact hunter, they would have been considered not significant. But because Art was a horticulturalist and an avid desert gardener. He brought the seeds home and he actually planted them. There's never been any way to know how old the seeds truly are. They're believed to be very ancient because the vessel has presumed to be basket to Anasazi,
0: uh-huh. basket
1: maker to Anasazi, so very old, likely many hundreds of years old. The vessel was filled with watermelon seeds. He planted the seeds at home in his garden. He said he planted about 150 seeds and only about a half a dozen germinated but he did get some to germinate he ended up getting some plants that first year, and he saved the seeds. He was astounded when he planted the seeds, and when they germinated, he was astounded that these fruit were crook They were so unusual, he'd never seen anything like it. And he cracked the fruit open, and they had this delicious, sweet, red flesh. Pretty shocked, because he thought maybe with this odd shape that the seeds are not going to be sweet, they weren't going to taste like your average watermelon. But he said that they were an exceptionally sweet variety. While the shape was unusual, the flesh was pretty traditional- red watermelon flesh, very sweet. So Art saved these seeds over several decades. I think it was about 50 years he reliably grew them out. And he was a commercial grower, so he had interest in making the seeds a a bit more rounded instead of crookneck shaped. So he was kind of crossbreeding them. And so we actually have a variety in our catalog right now called the ancient watermelon. And that's actually the result of Art's many years of breeding and it's a big round watermelon. Mm -hmm. But we were interested in tracing back and seeing if anybody had maybe gotten seeds from Art many years before he bred out the handle shape and see if anyone was still maybe growing a handle-shaped watermelon because that's the one we were really interested in. That's the shape that presumably the Native Americans had selected for were growing. So we caught up with this group of growers in Utah, excuse me, not Utah, in Nevada. This group of growers, they had been saving seed from, from a gentleman who had gotten seed from Art in the 1970s. So Art didn't actually plant all 200 seeds when he first poured those seeds out And planted them. He didn't actually plant all 200 seeds. He saved a few. Mm -hmm. He shared some of those seeds that came directly from the vessel with one of his gardening pals. And that was actually Clive and Bundy. We had been tipped off by someone who visits the National Heirloom Expo that there was this group of folks who were growing the handled watermelons. So we actually drove out to Nevada. We stopped in Vegas. And that was in the first week of September, I want to say. We stopped in Vegas and then just outside of Vegas in, I believe it's Overton, Nevada. Oh, no, that's Overton, Utah. I can't even remember the name of the town. We stopped out about an hour east of Vegas in Nevada and we met with some... Local growers who had been growing and saving the handled watermelons, they shared some seeds with us, and they all reveled us with stories of how Clive and Bundy has been a major melon farmer in the area, in that Nevada area, for decades, and how he's said to use this really unique dry farming technique to grow super sweet watermelons. And so he's been basically sharing this handled watermelon seed with his fellow growers in this area so, basically, we were able to finally find this handled watermelon that we had heard about.
0: And had the history of.
1: And we also followed the story. We actually went to the Nevada Southern Detention Center and did an exclusive interview with Clive and Bundy, where he detailed his dry farming method. He told us about his family history as melon farmers and his family history of living in the Nevada area since the wow. 1800s. So, we, this story took us... To some places we did not expect. We ended up at the Nevada Southern Detention Center. We ended up meeting with the grandson of Art Comby, the man who originally found the seeds. Art's grandson actually still has the vessel in which the seeds were found. Wow. Yeah. So we were able to tie together several elements of this story. We were able yeah. to connect with Art's grandson, see the vessel that was actually found in the cave in the 1920s. We were able to go to the Nevada Southern Detention Center and meet Clive and Bundy himself. And he gave us his story of how He was an old gardening pal of Art Comby in the 1970s and how he liked to share the seeds with his fellow gardeners. And we were able to meet up with the gardeners who'd been growing out these seeds. And it's especially important that they're growing the seeds out now that Cliven is in jail and unable to grow them himself. Yeah,
0: exactly. Do you have these seeds on your site? They
1: will be up in the next few years. We have to grow them out first and kind of build up a seed stock. So this is a developing story.
0: Perfect. So seed saving is passionate with you i can tell so for our listeners what can somebody do if they want to save their own seeds
1: start small that is my biggest piece of advice i always recommend starting with something like a favorite heirloom tomato or beans i was really taken with your idea of the great american seed swap so i guess folks in your area should check out the great american seed swap because it seems like it's a wealth of information education and seeds, which I love and I'm, I'm super excited about. If not, try growing any of your heirloom tomatoes, beans, peppers, Those are all super easy varieties for a beginning seed saver that you don't have to do much in the way of isolation and actual practice of seed saving for those is very easy.
0: Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might've learned from it.
1: I should mention before I talk about my failure and how I overcome it, that I do work for, as I call him, the Willy Wonka of seeds. My boss, Jared Gettle at Baker Creek, he is this incredible character, and he has these fantastic big ideas that are, they're Willy Wonka-esque. They're totally... Unique nice. and wild. <laughs> it's so much fun to make these wild ideas a reality. It's it's never a dull moment. And and one of the projects that I was tasked with when I had just started as the manager for Baker Creek, I was tasked with the job of designing a greenhouse. It was to be a tropical greenhouse, semi-tropical greenhouse that was going to be about 200 feet long and I think it was about 40 feet tall and it was going to have a water feature and we were going to have some ebb and flow tables and it had all these fantastic elements. I was so excited to be tasked with designing this except I am not a greenhouse designer. That is not in my well house or (laughs) wow. greenhouse. So I was excited for this project and I sort of dove in head first. And then I realized, Ooh, yeah, this is not my specialty. I'm not so good at this. So I did my best to get some ideas on the table and to, to make some calls for parts and things like that. But eventually I just had to fold and say, I need help with this project. I can't do it alone. It was such a cool project and I wanted to do right by it by reaching out and getting some help. I overcame it by knowing when to ask for help and to respect my own strengths and respect other people's strengths and ask someone who really, that was their forte to step in and help me. So we got some help and we made that incredible semi-tropical greenhouse a reality. And so now we do have this fantastic larger than life greenhouse made of polycarbonate. It's absolutely huge. Indeed, it has a water feature and it's got in-ground plantings of jackfruit, bananas, dragon fruit. We have A super deep bed for growing giant carrots wow yeah it's a little bit of everything of course there's always a stray chicken you know or
0: (laughs) or animals
1: running around the gardens in the greenhouse it's a fantastic place to work i learned to ask for help that with that one
0: nice so what do you consider your biggest success
1: Growing up on that tiny island, Block Island is the second smallest town in the smallest state, Rhode Island. And I grew up on a horse farm where the opportunity for travel just didn't exist. So I had developed a bit of a fear of travel throughout my teenage years. I was even very scared to move to Missouri and to take this job on. And now my job is to travel the world and basically push myself out of my comfort zone on a very regular basis. So I would consider it without a doubt, my greatest success is overcoming a fear of leaving my hometown and Mm -hmm. going from this three by seven mile Island to traveling all over the world.
0: Wow. You know, that's a whole podcast in itself, living on a three, growing up on a three by seven (laughs) Island, right?
1: Well, I think I learned we had our own kind of weird food desert out there. So I think it sort of made me hyper aware of food access oh, out that. there. That's one thing, one one factor.
0: So what drives you?
1: It goes back to the stories. There's a lot of reasons that I'm super obsessed with heirloom seeds and heirloom gardening. But I believe that when we share our stories, we kind of bear our souls. And we there's so much humanity in your personal story or or just the story of a seed. We have all these common threads that we find with each other when we tell a story and we can better identify with one another when we tell a story. So I think that sharing these stories cross-culturally and just family to family, I think it helps to break down the walls that are built up between us when we share these stories. And I think that we become more resilient culturally when we learn that we're not all so different and that we all have these beautiful things to bring to the table. And then, of course, environmentally, we're so much more resilient when we embrace and encourage that diversity of heirloom seeds where we have so many varieties and we do not acquiesce to the monopolization of our seed system.
0: Beautiful. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: I might have to cheat and recommend two. I hope that'd be okay. (laughs) I'll be brief with both of them, 100 vegetables and where they come from, is a book by William Moyes Weaver, and for anyone who's following this podcast and is getting really excited about seed stories, mm-hmm. you have to read that book. William Moyes Weaver is based out of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, but he is an incredible, an incredibly worldly seed saver and storyteller. He's just an outstanding writer. I, I really enjoy this book, and it's a great introduction to some of the more arcane heirlooms out there, some of the stuff that you don't, you maybe haven't heard of, but is so important culturally or culinarily. Dr. Weaver's also an incredible cook. He he ties in the culinary side of it beautifully. So, Highly recommend 100 Vegetables and Where They Come From by William Weiss Weaver. And then I also, because this is the Urban Farming Podcast and I must bring it up, The Good Food Revolution by Will Allen. I Mm. recently attended the Growing Power Conference in Milwaukee and I was absolutely astounded by how productive, highly productive and successful Will Allen's Urban Farming Project has been. It's. In, it was just a really moving conference to attend. I was really incensed by people's passion and just how much they've already accomplished. So his book is is incredibly inspiring. It's very well written. I was just on the edge of my seat. It's a great story. So Will Allen just weaves a beautiful tale. It's a great starter for anyone who wants to get into urban farming or or is already in into urban farming and wants to read about someone who's wildly successful and continuing to just really
0: make a difference
1: out of the park. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: If you are an avid, storyteller, writer, or if you're a gardener, I think that it rings true that you should always be asking questions. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions. I'm constantly putting myself out there asking questions that maybe sound, maybe they're stupid, I don't know, but I just want to know everything. I want to be very well-versed in this subject. So I ask a lot of questions, be inquisitive. On the flip side, I always share. I want to tell my stories. I want to share with folks what I've learned because you get that in return and so you're going to sometimes you're going to be vulnerable when you ask these questions or when you share, but you get the return is so worth it. Yeah. And always keep a journal. I never regret journaling or writing daily just to remember the stories that I have encountered or just to reflect on the things that have happened that day.
0: Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Shannon.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. I had a great time.
0: Oh, and great stories. Thanks for sharing them. How can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: So there's a few ways. If you're just sort of lightly interested in following my personal seed saga, you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is seed scavenger. If you are very interested in heirloom farming and you have questions, you can send me an email through Baker Creek. And my email is... Seeds at rareseeds.com. Attention horticulture or Shannon in the subject line. Of course, you could always check out our website, rareseeds.com. And finally, we have a robust Facebook following, and I actually do live videos on the Facebook. I try to get to them weekly. It's sort of a weather-permitting project, but check out our Facebook, and that's just Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds on Facebook.
0: Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Shannon. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, among others. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own.